Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and today is our two-year anniversary and the 40th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. To celebrate, we'll be talking about Central Power POWs, Indian revolutionaries, and British agents in Central Asia during the Russian Civil War. making history. You know what I'm going to say, get your vaccine. Okay, get vaccinated. If you've been vaccinated, get the booster. If you already have the booster, make sure everyone you know has the booster. Let's just get vaccinated. I know the mask mandate's been taken down. Please keep wearing your mask. There's a new variant out there, BA.2, I think, and it starts attacking your stomach. So the symptom is like a uh, stomach bug. Alright, so that just means that the virus is mutating because we're not wearing our masks, because we're not being vaccinated, because we're not practicing social distancing. So if we want this to end, we have to take the steps starting to end it, and it's just three steps. It's social distancing, it's wearing your mask, and it's being vaccinated. We are now in the fifth week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And while Ukraine has amazed the world with their courage and their determination, they need our help. The war has shifted from a quick victory to a prolonged campaign. And that means Ukraine is going to need continued moral, financial, and military support. This is going to run a lot longer than a couple of weeks. We need to keep up the pressure on our representatives to ensure that Ukraine gets the support it needs. How can we do that? So the first thing we can do is that we can call our representatives and ask them to do the following. Increase and maintain supplies and arms sent to Ukraine. Agree to take all refugees affected by this war. And send funds to frontline nations like Poland and Hungary, who are taking in 2 million plus refugees, right? They're getting hit first. They cannot maintain that. And they need us to start taking in refugees. And they need us to start sending them aid to help them uh, support refugees. Also, we need to talk to them about letting in non-white refugees, because that's also a problem. I created a Stand of Ukraine page on my blog, www.samswarroom.com, and that page provides a script you can use when you call your representatives and ask them to support Ukraine militarily and financially. And there's also a script that was uh, crafted by Never Again Chicago that you can use when you ask our representatives to increase our support for refugees. The page also contains a list of curated lists um, that were curated either by Ukrainians or other experts. Um, and it also just contains the list that I've create, curated of a bunch of organizations you can donate to. A, a few examples of these are Voices of Children, Come Back Alive, Sphere, which is an LGBTQ plus organization, Support Roma People of Ukraine fundraiser, Everyone Can, which is an organization that helps disabled children, Help Ukrainians with uh, Disabilities GoFundMe, The Kiev Independent, which is a newspaper currently operating in Kiev. 20.02 Foundation, which is an organization that equips reporters with protective gear um, and other needed equipment. I'd also check out Terrell Germain Starr's Twitter page and check out his podcast, Black Diplomats. He's a black journalist reporting live from Ukraine, and he needs all the support he can get. When you finish doing all of that, we need you to stand up for trans people. If you consider yourself a trans or queer ally, then now is the time to stand up and fight for our rights. 253 anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced all over the country. An organization called Stand Up for Trans Kids is tracking these bills. Of those 253 bills, 22 have passed, 130 have failed, and 101 are currently being considered. 
Additionally, there are states like Texas who are either enforcing existing laws or looking for new ways to implement their anti-trans hatred without having to resort to legislation. So it's not good, guys. Not good. How can you help? So first, you need to review the list of bills tracked by Step Up for Trans Kids and find bills being discussed in your state. Call your representatives and demand they vote down these bills. Now, even if you're in a Republican state, still call. You still have to call. Let's make this as uncomfortable for them as possible. Because even if the bill passes, we can drag it out. We can make it hard for them. We can make them feel as miserable as possible about attacking trans kids and attacking trans people. Go to your school board meetings and demand your school protects trans kids. Because that's like the next part, right? If you pass the bill, then it has to be enforced. And if you can go to these school boards and you can tell them like, no, don't enforce this. Let's work a way to challenge this. We need to protect our trans kids. That's another way of fighting for them. Finally, find clinics near you that provide services to trans kids and either donate to them or ask them, how can you help them? You know, what do they need? I also would say find trans organizations in your state and ask them, what do you need? How can I show up? This is a huge fight. It's going to go into the midterms. We need to stand with trans kids and trans people and say, no, you know, we don't want you to attack these people. We want these people to have their rights. We want them to be safe. Finally, when the United States left Afghanistan, it imposed a number of sanctions on the Taliban, which contributed to a growing famine. Now that Russia and Ukraine are at war with each other, the risk of famine is worsening, not just for Afghanistan, but for other parts of Central Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. This is because Russia and Ukraine exported most of their wheat. I don't know if they're the biggest wheat exporters, but they're huge. They're like top five at the very least. Obviously, they're not going to be able to export anything this year, so it's time for the rest of the world to step up and help. How can we do that? So one is to call representatives and demand they end all sanctions on Afghanistan, ease any other restrictions we're putting on aid that, that can be sent to Afghanistan, and then draft and pass a bill sending funds and resources to Afghanistan. We also have to review how much wheat we grow and see if we can export that wheat, or how much wheat that we can export to these regions that are being affected. We must also call our representatives and tell them we want them to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would allow Afghan parolees to seek legal permanent residence in the United States. What does that mean? Basically, right now, their residence here is temporary, and there's a lot of red tape they have to go through to try and become permanent, and it takes years, and they could be deported before that happens. So what the Afghan Adjustment Act would do is it just says, okay, you go from temporary to legal, and you don't have to do all that red tape. They might create new red tape, which is a different problem, but it makes the process a lot easier and they don't have to fear about being deported. We also need to ask our representatives to end current deportations and increase the number of Afghans we are allowed to resettle here. The United States is going to have to review its refugee process. It, it has to. Between Ukraine, Syria, which is still going on, Afghanistan now, Yemen, which is still going on, which the United States is partially responsible for. The refugee crisis just keeps growing and growing and growing. We have to change how we allow refugees in. We need to be more welcoming. We need to be more open. We can do that for the Ukrainians, we can also do it for the Afghans, the Syrians, the Yemenis, the Condolese, the Haitians, everyone. We need to do this, and now is the time to do it, and that's what we need to tell our representatives. And now, time to discuss revolutionaries, spies, and POWs. The last few months, we've tailored our conversation about Central Asia during the Russian Civil War around the major actors. So we've talked about the Red and White Armies, the Alash Orda, the Jadids, and the Basmachi. But can you really claim you've discussed the Russian Civil War without dedicating at least one episode to spies, revolutionaries, and POWs? Part 1. Central Power POWs Before the Russian Revolution, Russia was at war with the Central Powers during World War I, and by 1917 had captured approximately 2.4 million prisoners from its eastern front alone. 
When considering all of their fronts, it's estimated that they captured 8 million prisoners in total. These prisoners were held all over the Russian Empire, with a considerable number held in Siberia and Central Asia. The treatment of prisoners depended on rank, ethnicity, slash nationality, when, where, and how they were captured, and where they were held. With the Austro-Hungarian prisoners getting the best treatment, the Germans getting the second best, and then you have the Ottomans. Russia implemented several policies and initiatives meant to encourage Austro-Hungarian prisoners to defect to the Russian army. The legendary Czechoslovak Legion and the Serbian Volunteer Corps were built from POW who took up the Russians' offer to fight the Central Powers. For the most part, officers were treated better than the rank and file, receiving a stipend from the Russian government, while the privates and NCOs had to work to survive. It is estimated that POWs made up 20-25% of Russia's workforce by 1917. Many prisoners even produced their own products and integrated themselves into the communities of wherever they were being held. The money allowed POWs to buy desperately needed supplies, and some were even able to buy passports and a route home. For many, the freedom of movement and a chance to work was the very lifeline they needed to survive, especially if joining the workforce meant they would be moved from a camp in, say, Siberia or Central Asia, to a camp in the western part of Russia. For others, though, working to be a death sentence as working and living conditions could be appalling. After the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks declared all POWs free, meaning the government would no longer provide stipends, food, or housing. The POWs now joined the poor Russian workers as they tried to navigate the chaotic period that was the Russian Revolution and then the Civil War. For many POWs, the, war, the end of the war meant doing what it took to survive as they tried to find a way home. Some POWs joined the Communist Party and or fought during the Russian Civil War. Others were repatriated, continued to work as cheap labor, or joined the many mercenaries slash armed gangs until an opportunity to escape presented itself. Repatriation was a complicated affair. At first, the Bolsheviks repatriated 200,000 POWs after signing the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, but as the Civil War dragged on, they grew reluctant to lose their workforce. The White Army refused to acknowledge the end of the war, and thus didn't repatriate POWs on principle, or in the case of Siberia, left the POWs in the hands of the United States and Japanese forces. When the camps formally dissolved in 1920, 500,000 POWs were still in Russia, out of 500,000, approximately 30,000 Germans and 118,000 former Austro-Hungarian soldiers eventually returned from Siberia and Central Asia. Between 1921 and 1922, an estimated additional 13,000 Austro-Hungarians returned home. It is unknown how many POWs remained in Russia. Part 1a. Austro-Hungarian and German POWs in Central Asia. The prisoners of war in Siberia slash Central Asia can be split into two different categories, the Austro-Hungarian slash German prisoners and the Ottoman prisoners. The treatment of the two groups seem to have varied based on location of the prisons and where and when slash when the POWs were captured, but it becomes clear that the Russians were more interested in interning European prisoners than dealing with Ottoman prisoners. By 1915, the office of the Governor General in Turkestan constructed several camps throughout the region, including one 40 kilometers outside of Tashkent, meant to hold several thousand prisoners. The people of Tashkent had mixed reactions to the influx of prisoners. Some Russian officials believed it was their sacred duty to care for fellow Slavs, while others saw the POWs as a legitimate source of labor. In Tashkent, there had been a growing fear that the war would only increase Russia's reliance on Muslim and women laborers. Some Russian settlers grew annoyed at the privileges many POWs enjoyed and didn't appreciate having a new group of laborers to compete with. Most Austro-Hungarian officers were held in former soldier barracks, hotels, and other reconfigured buildings, while the rank and file were crammed into makeshift camps. POWs were allowed to mix freely with civilians while on day leave, 
could walk around in their uniforms, enjoy first access to subsidized state food, and were allowed to partake in luxury goods like preserved plums. The Tashkent branch of the All-Russian Society of the Guardianship of Slavic Prisoners adopted the Slavic POWs and offered courses on the Russian language, its history, economy, and geography. They believed that was the best way to quote-unquote civilize their fellow Slavs while integrating them into Russian society. Yet despite all these privileges, the Central Asian camps were considered death camps. Many camps could only hold up to 10,000 prisoners, but were forced to hold up to 25 to 35,000 prisoners. Malaria and typhus ran rampant, claiming 15 to 80 prisoners a day. There was a lack of food, clothing, and sanitary conditions in camps. The influx of prisoners strained an already precarious food situation in Central Asia, contributing to the famines we would see starting in 1916 and continuing into the 1920s. When the Russian Revolution ended the war, many POWs had to choose how to survive the chaos. Some, like the Hungarian POWs held in Central Asia, supported the Russian settlers in their battle against the Central Asian Muslims and indigenous peoples. Others were forced to join the Soviets or starve. According to the Danish Red Cross delegate A.H. Brun, and later confirmed by, by German prisoners last by Gustav Christ, the Tashkent Soviet leaders deliberately starved 38,000 prisoners in order to force them to join their Red Guard. By the mid-1920s, the majority of Red Guard troops were former prisoners of war. Part 1b. Ottoman POWs. While the Russians were mostly welcoming of the Slavic prisoners, the Ottoman POW experience was mixed. It is estimated that the Russians captured 50,000 Ottoman soldiers. When they were marched or held in Muslim lands, they reported being greeted warmly and formed bonds with the locals. However, when marched through Armenian cities or villages, they were met with hostilities and sometimes violence. However, some Ottoman officer memoirs report Armenians outside of the Caucasus helping Ottomans escape, so it seems to be a mixed bag. Overall, though there doesn't seem to be a concerted effort to mistreat Ottoman POWs, hundreds died on their journey to the camps. They were often held in cramped, poorly ventilated train cars and exposed to the elements during the entire trip, where many would suffocate or succumb to the elements. Additionally, their carts were the only ones locked from the outside, and sometimes the Russians would forget about them. There are a handful of reports where the trains would arrive at their destination, but the Ottomans would be left trapped in their carts for days until someone decided to take a look. The Ottoman prisoners were also devastated by lack of sanitary facilities and disease. Relations among the Austro-Hungarian, German, and Ottoman prisoners seemed to be cordial, with officers teaching each other their native languages, putting together musical groups and shows, organizing newspapers and sport games, and partaking in crafts together. There seems to have been some tension between the Turkish POWs and their Arab counterparts, but it's hard to gain a true understanding of how significant these tensions were. If Ottoman POWs were held in Muslim-majority areas, they were allowed to attend the local mosques, and Ottoman officers wrote about, about partaking in fasts during Ramadan. When the Bolsheviks liberated the Ottoman POWs, they quickly found common cause with various groups of Muslim reformers, guerrillas, and conservatives. The Kokan government and later the Mersboro recruited the Ottoman prisoners as school teachers and as organizers of youth political groups with a Turkish twist. The clubs range from being the first Boy Scouts to being strong nationalistic clubs to semi-military youth organizations. Given the Ottoman POW's background, the schools they, work, they worked in took a militaristic tone with a focus on discipline and fitness. Many Ottoman prisoners didn't believe in the Jadid's version of Turkism, but worked to survive. The Bolsheviks deported most of the Ottoman POWs out of Turkestan by 1920. Those who escaped the Bolsheviks in Turkestan found work in Bukhara until 1922, when the Soviets asserted their control over Central Asian education by firing all the Ottoman instructors. 
just one of the many fronts the Bolsheviks and the indigenous people of Central Asia fought over as Central Asia was brought into the Soviet fold. Part 2. Indian Revolutionaries The efforts of Indian nationalists, revolutionaries, activists, and communists to liberate their land of British rule is beyond our current scope, but I do want to briefly discuss the role Central Asia played in uniting Indian revolutionaries with Bolsheviks and helping to develop Indian communist thought. Like Ireland and other British colonies, India's independence movement as we know it started in the early 1900s and grew out of decades of anti-colonial resistance and rebellions. I think there's a common perception that the British waltzed into India and the Indians bowed down and gladly welcomed their colonists and oppressors. That's not true at all, with the most famous rebellion being the Indian Rebellion or Mutiny of 1857. British historian William Dalrymple wrote a fascinating book about the rebellion called The Last Moodle, The Fall of a Dynasty, Delhi, 1857. I'd also recommend Indian Summer, The Secret History of the End of an Empire by Alex von Tunzelman, which talks about the Indian independence movement from the creation to the liberation and partition of India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Again, like the cadre of Irish volunteers led by Pierce, some members of the Indian independence movement looked to Britain's enemies as allies. One such man was Raja Mahendra Pratap Singh, a well-known writer and revolutionary. He and a number of other revolutionaries traveled to Germany and created the Berlin Committee, an organization for Indians fighting for India's liberation. Clary Chap used the German support to travel to Afghanistan as an emissary in 1915. From there, he created a government in exile called the Provisional Government of India, with Clary Chap as its president. We won't talk too much about what was going on in Afghanistan during this episode, because it's so much, and it really deserves its own series of episodes, which we are writing. So there's that to look forward to. Um, but all you need to know in the context of this specific episode is that in 1915, Afghanistan was a pseudo-British colony-ish. They had fought two wars prior to 1915, but relations were somewhat friendly, as long as Afghanistan walked the tightrope of neutrality, while allowing Britain to dominate external affairs in return for financial support. So when revolutionary Indians entered Afghanistan and started talking about overthrowing the British Empire, it raised more than a few eyebrows. Um, and then the United States captured a German agent, an Indian revolutionary, who revealed Praetap's plans, forcing Afghanistan to disavow him. Additionally, Germany's support was lukewarm at this point. This is the World War, so Praetap's ambitions had to be put on hold until the October Revolution of 1917. The Bolsheviks' firm anti-colonial stance seemingly made it an ideal for Praetap and his fellow revolutionaries. He traveled through Kashkent and to Petrograd to meet Lenin and discuss how both sides did benefit each other in their effort to end colonialism and spread communism. Initially, the Bolsheviks were keen to support the Indian Revolution because they saw it as a way to weaken Britain. Given Praetap's recent adventures in Afghanistan, it also made sense to use him and his, and his fellow Indian revolutionaries as emissaries to Afghanistan as a way to further threaten British interests in India. Afghanistan became even more appealing to the Bolsheviks in 1919 when the quote-unquote Crow British emir was assassinated and replaced by his son Amanullah. Amanullah would start and win the Third Anglo-Afghan War, severing any reliance Afghanistan had on British money, and created an independent state. The Bolsheviks courted Afghanistan, who once again had to walk a tightrope of benefiting from Bolshevik attention without creating a scenario to reinvite war with Britain. Right, because they just won, they're independent, but Britain's still around, Britain still controls India, you don't want to restart that war. Things grew tense between Afghanistan and the Bolsheviks, 
because Amanula was supporting his counterpart in Buhara. And that becomes a problem in 1920 because Firenze is trying to overthrow the, the emir because he's not communist enough. So it's a little tricky. Um, in the end, Afghanistan signed a peace treaty with both Russia and Britain in 1921, but remained an ambiguous supporter of the Budharan Amir and the Basmachi forces. This ambiguity angered Pratap, who returned from Afghanistan and relied on the Russians. The Indian revolutionaries settled in Kash Tent, which from 1919 onwards was managed by Muslim reformists and communists and their Bolshevik counterparts, and we'll get into like, that tension in other episodes. Um, but one can imagine the excitement that ran through both the Indian revolutionaries and the Central Asian members of the Tajid and Tamiya's parties as they worked together and shared the same space during this revolutionary period of time, and how exciting it must have been to be part of this effort to end colonialism and conservatism and capitalism and have your voice held, like heard, right? Because the Musburo is is basically run by two Irish Kuloth, who is a Kazakh intellectual. You've got the Jadids, they're working with the Bolsheviks to kind of create a system of government. Fitrap is a Jadid uh, thinker, one of the most famous ones, and he's in Bukhara trying to help Truans overthrow the Emir. So they're working together. And so like this is kind of proof, I feel like, for the Indian revolutionaries, like, oh, you know, the Russians, they're not just all talk. We can do something here. And we can meet our fellow, you know, revolutionary Muslims. And together we can create something. While in Tashkent, the Indian revolutionaries spend most of their time reading about communism, spreading the message of Bolshevism and Indian liberation through their own networks, and training several militant organizations how to fight for Indian liberation. After helping to establish a cadre of Indian revolutionaries in Kashkent, Pratap would travel around Asia to gather support for his evolved thinking of a pan-Asian province, so he kind of goes in a different direction, um, and the work of Indian, of Indian independence is taken up by two revolutionaries, Manabendra Nathroy and MPT Archarya. Part 2A. MPT Archarya. There are several Indian revolutionaries in Kashkant, but the reason I want to focus on Roy and Archarya is because they represent two different approaches towards merging Indian independence with communism, and their differences highlight why their efforts ultimately failed to liberate India. Acharya was born in 1887 to a Brahmin family and quickly became involved in political agitation. He was drawn to the cause of Indian independence and studied with famous social reformer Lakmanya Tilak before being chased out of India because of his nationalistic leanings. Acharya resettled in Paris and became involved in the printing of several newspapers before traveling around the world agitating for Indian independence. He made his way to Germany and joined the Berlin Indian Committee before being sent to Afghanistan to start laying the groundwork for an attack against British India. He then traveled to Moscow, met Lenin, and returned to Kabul in 1919 to continue the work he started with the Germans. While in Kabul, he and Abdur Rab Bark, another Indian revolutionary, founded the Indian Revolutionary Association, the IRA, not the Irish version, and they engaged with different peoples of Kabul who also wanted independence. Even though the IRA was created with Soviet support and funds, they did not enforce ideological rigidity or purity. Instead, the uniting factor was their shared hatred of the British Empire. This enabled the IRA to recruit amongst a wide range of revolutionaries and nationalists, and their numbers grew. They relied on Afghanistan to serve as a jump pad into India, but Amanula expulsed all Indian revolutionaries from his territory and forbade them from agitating along the Indian-Afghan border in May 1920. The IRA moved their headquarters to Kashkent, already home to several Indian revolutionaries, 
while in Tashkent, Acharya worked closely with his communist counterparts and seems to have either been a member of or worked with their propaganda branch in Tashkent. He also continued to recruit militant groups of Indians, Afghans, Iranians, and others to fight for the shared Bolshevik Indian cause. Then, Menabendra Roy arrived in Tashkent in October 1920. Part 2b, Menabendra Nath Roy. Roy is a colorful figure in a region of the world full of colorful characters. Born in 1887 in West Bengal, near Calcutta, right like Acharya, Roy was swept into the nationalist movement at a young age when he organized against the Bengal partition of 1905. However, unlike Acharya, he joined the more violent group of revolutionaries who often funded their efforts via armed robbery. Like the Irish, Roy and his conspirators turned to Germany for aid. Roy was sent to Java to welcome a German shipment of arms that never materialized. The British found out about the plot, so it was too dangerous for Roy to return to India, so instead he traveled first to Japan, then China, and finally the United States. He caught the attention of the American police and had to flee to Mexico, where he met communist agent Mikhail Borodin. Together they founded the Mexican Communist Party, the first communist party outside of Russia. Borodin was recalled to Moscow in April 1920 and took Roy with him. Roy wrote the following about his meeting with Lenin, quote, Nearly a head shorter, he tilted his red goatee almost to a horizontal position to look at my face quizzically. I was embarrassed, did not know what to say. He helped me out with a banter. You are so young. I expected a gray-bearded wise man from the East. Quote is from Setting the East of Flame by Peter Hawkert. Lenin seemed to believe that Roy was a powerful leader who could help him spread communism to the Asian world. Roy, for his part, criticized Lenin's understanding of the colonial problem, believing that Europe's liberation laid in the liberation of their colonies. Once the colonies were free, then communism to be brought to Europe. It couldn't happen before, it couldn't happen the vice versa, and it couldn't happen simultaneously. You had to do one and then the other. Roy also refused to work with non-Marxist liberation movements, whereas Lenin was more practical and would take whoever he could get. Once the Bolsheviks established their power, then these nationalistic movements could be converted to communism or eradicated. Lenin seemed impressed with Roy's arguments and asked him to write a supplementary appendix to his own preliminary draft thesis on the national and the colonial question. After, uh, Roy was sent to Tashkent to help coordinate efforts to train militant groups. According to his own biography, he arrived in Tashkent in two heavily armed trains containing weapons for, for the Indian revolutionaries, and initially he and Acharya worked well together. Acharya had a great working relationship with the soldiers and the Muslim civilians, whereas Roy alienated many Muslims with his strict communist thinking and anti-religious sentiments. Still, he was able to craft a military school to train troops for his liberation of India, and he, Acharya, and many other revolutionaries were able to found the Indian Communist Party, the ICP, in 1920. However, they ran into difficulties during their second meeting when they discussed who would be eligible, eligible to join the ICP. Roy pushed for a strict rule that people could only join if they were also not members of a political group not under communist control. So, Acharya's IRA, for example, it's not a communist organization. So, technically, Acharya, since he's part of the IRA, would not be able to join the ICP until he left the IRA. Roy even went so far as to withhold funds from organizations that he felt weren't ideologically pure enough, eventually destroying the IRA. Acharya would later claim... We are not against communism, and we do not make a distinction between a communist revolutionary or just a revolutionary. All we object to is forcible conversion to communism, at least in the form dictated by Roy and the common turn. 
quote is from Indian Nationalists and the Soviets in Central Asia by Lena Bernstein. That did not save him from further trouble with Roy. In 1921, he wrote the Comintern complaining, quote, with, re with reference to the discussion now going on with regard to Indian question, from which I purposely abs absented myself, as I am less sanguine about the results intended to be achieved by these methods in person, I am sending you herewith a paper giving my experience of Roy and his Indian Communist Party during a whole year and showing how they sabotaged it in the past. It must also be pointed out that I was one of the original members of the so-called Indian Communist Party and was thrown out for criticizing Roy's and his lieutenant's methods. To make matters worse, the British were aware of Roy and his efforts to build an army that would eventually threaten the British Raj. They tried to starve Roy of funds that were slipping into Turkestan to the poorest borders, and their agents worked overtime to intercept Roy's agents and gather as much information as possible on Roy and his fellow revolutionaries. Meanwhile, Russia was having issues with its economy and internal unrest. If it was to survive, it needed to make sacrifices. So in 1921, Lenin made an ideological sacrifice and signed the Anglo-Soviet Trade Agreement, ending the Allies' blockade and opening Bolshevik Russia to trade and investment from a capitalist empire. It also put an end to any planned invasion of India. The best of Roy's recruits were sent to Moscow for further training, while the le rest were left to fend for themselves. Roy would return to Moscow and continue to serve the Soviet Union until Stalin's terror forced him to flee in 1928. After being kicked out of the Indian Communist Party and realizing that he would not break Moscow's support of Roy, Acharya left Hashkent in 1922 and traveled to Germany, continuing to fight for India's liberation and experimenting with anarchism. Unfortunately, the Indian affair highlights a lot of problems the Bolsheviks had spreading their ideology and working with non-Russians. Initially, the Soviets were eager to support the Indian revolutionaries, and it seemed that the Indians and Bolsheviks could work well together. But soon, ideological demands pushed people out and or eventually led to their death as the smallest of infractions or made-up accusations led to the firing squad. Additionally, participants were increasingly encouraged to fight amongst themselves as they struggled to maintain ideological purity and continue to enjoy Moscow's support. This is a pattern we will see at the Bolsheviks and the Central Asian cohorts as this podcast progresses. Finally, something must be said about the likelihood of Roy's efforts succeeding in the ultimate liberation of India, as I think the United States has, should know by now, taking a handful of disgruntled or exiled peoples, running them through military training, and then sending them back into their home countries with weapons and some money is not enough to overthrow any but the weakest of governments. While I suppose one should never say never, it should have been clear early on that the efforts of the Indian communists and Indian revolutionaries were doomed to fail given Britain's jealous control over India and the fact that the World War ended in 1918, allowing Britain to reposition troops as needed to answer any incursion or risk of rebellion. Part 3. British Agents Speaking of the British, we now get to talk about British agents in Central Asia. If you listen to my other episodes, you know I have lots of thoughts about the Great Game, but for the British in the 1900s, it was an all-too-real competition for the survival of the Empire. So when the Bolsheviks took over and started working their way into Central Asia, the British grew worried about Afghanistan and then India. They sent a number of agents into the region, but today we're going to talk about two, one of whom is probably the most famous British agent working in Central Asia during the First World War. Part 3A, F.M. Bailey. It's probably impossible to discuss Britain and Central Asia without mentioning Frederick Bailey. Born in 1882 in Lahore, Bailey had already had considerable experience in the spy game by the time World War I started. He joined the Indian Army in 1901 and spent most of his time exploring China and Tibet. During the war, he served on the Western Front and apparently fought at Gallipoli before being sent to Central Asia in 1918 to figure out what the hell was going on in Russia. 
He entered Tashkent as a British officer and started to meet with contacts when word reached Tashkent that the British were fighting Russian forces in Transcaspia, which would get its own season, I promise, someday in the future. Bailey did his best to explain what he couldn't possibly know as he had lost all contact with British officers in India and Iran. Shortly afterwards, he learned about his upcoming arrest and went into hiding amongst friends in the city. It may have been around this time that he learned and became involved in the upcoming rising led by Asipov via his contact, Paul Nazarov, a, Ru a white Russian. As we know, Asipov's rising failed, Nazarov barely escaped Tashkent with his life, and Bailey transformed himself into an Austrian POW. Bailey spent the next few months muddling reports to his superiors, including information on Pratap and the Indian Revolutionary Communists. If he thought that Britain was still pushing to liberate Tashkent, his hopes were quickly squashed, and he knew his only option was to get out. His best hope was to travel to Bukhara, which was still ruled by the Emir at this time, and the Emir, kind of like the Afghan Emir, is trying to play both sides. He wants Russia to be happy with him, and he wants Britain to be happy with him. Once he got to Bukhara, Bailey could make his way across the Karatum Desert to the Persian border and meet up with Iranian forces in Meshed. To escape, he joined the Cheka and then volunteered to spy in the Bukhara Emir for the Bolsheviks. Trusting a Serbian contact, he fooled the Russians into hiring him, got the Bukhara job, and was told to keep an eye out for a British agent named F.M. Bailey, who was wandering Turkestan, causing trouble. Bailey reported back that Bailey had last been seen leaving Afghanistan towards the Fergana. The Bolsheviks would later claim to have killed Bailey crossing the Persian frontier and gave him a full military funeral. I'm sure Bailey would later report to his superiors that the reports of his death had been greatly exaggerated. He then traveled to Bukhara, but was not greeted by the emir, who according to Bailey, quote, I have so far seen no member of the Bukharan government who are suspicious and are afraid to have anything to do with me. Our troops are far off and Bolsheviks are near, and I suppose they are afraid of consequences if the Bolsheviks hear they are helping me. Quote is from Making Uzbekistan by Adi Khalid. Bailey stayed in the city for a while, gathering what intelligence he could, and maybe discussed plans for defense and rebellion with the Emir Bukhara. Or maybe his mere presence was later trumped up by the Bolsheviks to justify their invasion of Bukhara in August 1920. That's a little unclear. Um, but eventually, he received orders to leave Bukhara as soon as he could, for it was no longer safe for him. He left on the night of December 18, 1919, and reached Iran in January 1920. He accomplished very little that was tangible, but his daring exploits and his entertaining memoir would later make him a legend within the stories of the great game and British spy craft. Part 3b, P.T. Atherton. While Bailey was trying to escape the Bolsheviks in Kashkent, another British servant, Colonel Percy T. Atherton, was stationed in Kashgar in modern-day Xinjiang on the Russian-Chinese border. His job was to ensure the Bolsheviks did not spill into Xinjiang region and upset British interests. Atherton had served in the Australian gold fields before riding with Kissinger's fighting scouts in the Boer War and served with the Indian Army Frontier Regiment during World War I before being picked for spy work. Before the war, he also explored the Premier Mountains and spent considerable time around Kashgar and then took a detour into Mongolia and rode home via the Trans-Siberian Railway. He would write a book about his experiences called Across the Roof of the World. Atherton was sent to Kashgar to replace the British Consul General on June 7, 1918, with the responsibility of protecting the rights of the British Indian subjects in Xinjiang and to ensure the Russians couldn't find another way at harming British control in India. Atherton immediately took over the Consul General's spy network and gathered what information he could about the Bolsheviks as Bailey left for his grand journey. Atherton took advantage of the Indian merchants in the region, Kazakh nomads who crossed the Premier 
white Russian soldiers and officers who cross the border to and fro, and other locals to create a network that, quote, the system worked well and enabled me to keep in touch with almost every house and family of note in the country, and no move of importance could be made without it being known. Quote is from Setting the East Ablaze by Peter Hopkirk. Atherton and Bailey worked closely together as Bailey got involved in Osipov uprising. It seems that Atherton tried to send him money for that rebellion, and Bailey was constantly trying to smuggle information to Atherton and vice versa. Given the technological limits of the region, it is hard to determine what actually got through the chaos that was Turkestan at this time, and that is a common critique of Atherton's work. His reports were either incomplete, repetitive of news other agents had already sent, or just not accurate. When he wasn't trying to contact Bailey, he kept a close eye on whoever crossed the Russian Xinjiang border and tracked down all the Bolsheviks agents in the region. He feared that the Russians would turn the region into a hotbed of sedition and rebellion. He was also on the lookout for anyone turning against the Bolsheviks and may have saved the life of white Russian agent Paul Nazarov when he arrived in Kashgar after months of being on the run. Atherton knew he couldn't control the entire border by himself, so he pressured the Chinese government to increase their border security. The Bolsheviks pushed for China to open consulates in Xinjiang and return all anti-Bolshevik Russians to them, including the last imperial Russian consulate in the region. Atherton used Islamophobia to stoke China's fears over their Muslim population. He argued that if the Bolsheviks were allowed into Xinjiang, they would stir up Muslim population to rise up, similar to what was happening in Turkestan, even though we know that that situation is far more complicated. Atherton also squashed any attempts to restart trade and privately complained that without him, the Chinese would welcome the Russians with open arms. From this brief overview of his career, we can safely say that he was a bit of a bigot who engaged in xenophobia, like most British agents. We can also say that the Chinese administrators had their own interests to protect, and is it a surprise they didn't always align with the xenophobic British agent? The Anglo-Soviet agreement put an end to his operations in Xinjiang, and he grudgingly left the region in 1922. Like Bailey, it is hard to say that he truly accomplished anything beyond gathering some information, and some of it highly questionable, and causing minor hindrances for the Bolsheviks. We must also consider Kashgar's isolated nature and understand that a lot of what Etherton did was of his own initiative, and he did not have the funds or support needed to create a truly effective spy network. He was really on his own. A lot of it was Etherton grabbing whoever he could find and sending them into Turkestan to maybe come back with useful information. It also didn't help that the Indian office and the foreign office in London didn't have a coordinated plan or approach when it came to Central Asia and beyond. Their number one goal was protect India, anything beyond that was unclear. This disconnect might be why Britain's agreement with the Soviets caught Etherton and other agents by surprise. After Etherton left, Kashgar, a subordinate who would later replace him, denounced Etherton for cooking the financial books to hide personal expenses, and even claimed that Etherton had slept with prostitutes in Kashgar. An audit confirmed that he conducted financial shenanigans, and he was barred from working in the Indian political service ever again. However, he was allowed to remain in military service as long as he reimbursed the government a thousand rupees. He paid the fine and then left the military a month later after being refused commendations for his work in Kashgar. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and our website www.samswarroom.com. Please join our Patreon where you can support our research while gaining access to special content and other perks. Until next time, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.